So you've decided to give up that old behavior that's been killing you and all you care for and surrender to a power greater than yourself. That's the first step. Surrender is what opens the prison door. Now it's time to walk through that door and into a whole new way of life. Spirituality, self-care, service, social connection, and the simple daily disciplines that pave the way to lasting freedom. This is Positive Sobriety. Welcome to another episode of the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Hey, I'm Nate Larkin here with my friend and yours, David Hampton. We are cruising right now. I don't know when you're listening to this show because conversations live forever on the internet. But we're recording it in the spring of uh, 2024. Yeah. Uh, February has arrived. Allie and I have decamped from Tennessee temporarily. We're for six weeks down in Amelia Island, Florida. But David and I are still together through the magic of the internet. Yeah, it's like we never left. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, the weather here is not as different from Franklin as I had hoped it would be. Uh, well, I right think now, prospects, prospects for improvement are on the horizon, but it is still fairly cold. We've had some rain. Uh, you know, it's not beach weather yet, but yeah. it's nice to be here. Well, and it's inordinately warm in Tennessee right now for this time of year. I mean, we're looking at the highs in the low 60s uh, this whole week, I think. Okay, yeah, pretty so. much the same thing here in Amelia Island, which, as it turns out, is good weather for what my son has decided I will be doing with him for the six weeks that we're here. All right, what's what's that? It's rucking. <laughs> what the hell is rucking? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't sound fun. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Uh, yeah, Allie just tells me to ruck off. So uh, here's what rucking is. Uh, it's it's uh, it's walking or hiking with a weighted vest. Oh god! So my okay. son bought me this vest, and he has one as well. Uh, that has pockets front and back to evenly mm. distribute the weight. And it comes with up to 50 pounds of weights. Oh my Lord. Okay. Maybe 40 pounds of weights. It's heavy as hell. Okay. Uh, my first mistake was to load it with 30. <laughs> my thinking was I have weighed 30. I've, I've lost 30 pounds. So I just uh -huh. put 30 pounds on. God, I almost killed myself. So uh, <laughs> you load it and then you just go out hiking. And here we've yeah. got trails. So uh, we did, we've already done four miles this morning. My son and I took the dog. Wow. Okay. Okay. I, I will tell you, it uh, tightens the core, good for the core, good for balance. Uh, mm -hmm. Definitely gets the heart rate up, but not in, you know, ear pounding uh, mm -hmm. rapidity. Yeah. Uh, but you'll work up a good sweat. And supposedly, it's one of the very best, uh, you know, low impact 
exercises you can do. And as you know, I'm all about training and physical fitness. That's well, my, that's yeah, my so jam. All the latest trends of uh, the fitness uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> industry there for you. Um, well, but here's the thing, Nate, though. So you, you, you walk, though, with it. You don't run. You don't jog. Right, no, you walk like, with it. Okay, okay. When you're all kitted up, you look like uh, you're in the, you're, you're a member of a SWAT team. I mean, if <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it looks like I'm about to batter down a, a, a door. Yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Well, did you but have that feeling like where you, um, where you think, God, I used to carry this around all day, every oh, day. Yeah. And oh, yeah. this was like a normal feeling for me. Yeah. No wonder I was so tired at yeah. 30 pounds heavy. Well, right. Yeah. 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 Today I just loaded it for the last couple of days. I've just loaded it with 20, which is plenty enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, well, so build up to more. Yeah. You think you'll bring that um, back to Tennessee with you and be the guy walking around Mount Pleasant? Uh, yeah, I, 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 I will. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't know how it's going to work in the heat of summer uh-huh. uh, to wear that thing. Uh, but for now, you know, it's not, it's, it's, it's not unpleasant and okay. it's definitely a good workout. I, you know, and, well, and, and, you know, I had a nice long conversation with my son in the process. So that's, I mean, it yeah. doesn't get any better than that. Dave. Well, no, uh, I mean, yeah, your, your kid asks you to do something with them. It'd be, you know, carrying a sack of feed on your head. If that's what gets you, you know, some time alone with them as having adult children, when they can make time for you, you're all in, you know, that's it. And, yeah. Oh yeah. And we're also here. Uh, there are, we have two, Daniel has two kids, a boy and a girl, and they both have birthdays during this oh. six weeks span of where we are. So, okay. Charlie turns 11 on Saturday and then her next month, his sister. Well, there you so, go. It yeah. Makes makes the rucking uh, all the more worthwhile. <laughs> yeah. And in the meantime, uh, I'm busy down here uh, speaking at conferences and visiting Samson groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it's wonderful. Well, it sounds like a great a great time. Uh, yeah. Maybe minus the vest. I'm going to have to think about that. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but it sounds like a great time. So here, look, I'm going to be like the good friend slash nosy mother and say, David, mm-hmm. uh, when is your next vacation? <laughs> wow. That was a segue. <laughs> <laughs> that is a good question. You know, I had thought maybe in the spring I was going to go up to New York um, mm-hmm. and just bum around for a few days. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, the low holiday uh, and flu season and the week of snow took a bite out of my income. That uh, oh, took... yeah. <laughs> oh, I thought, well, maybe I need to stay here uh, in, through part of the spring and uh, a little and make staycation. Up... Okay. Yeah, make up for lost time. But though, to your point, and seriously, it's a good, a great admonition and question. I need to, I need to find something for uh, sometime before summer for sure. Yes. Get a, away for a week and pull the plug and close the door and uh, just go be um, completely apart from the things that I love. I, that, you know, love what I do, but um, sometimes maybe our listeners have a suggestion. I think, I think uh, (laughs) (laughs) let's open it up to everybody. (laughs) Yeah. 
what do you all think David should do on his vacation? <laughs> there right. you go. Yeah. Yeah. David should come and paint my house. That's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. <laughs> Uh, good question, though. Yeah, I, we will keep you posted, folks, uh, as to how I decide to spend it. So, all right. Well, <laughs> hey, we got a we got a we got a good conversation on tap this week. Uh, yeah, we guy, do. I, uh, I, I know enough about his story to know it's going to be interesting. Uh, listeners, I have a hunch you're going to love this guy. We'll be back with Jonathan Nizal in a moment on the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. Well, this week, uh, David, we have reached all the way uh, down to Fort Worth, Texas, to find uh, our guest. We have. A professional, uh, a professional model, a real estate investor, aspiring podcaster, and a fascinating guy. Yeah. Yeah, he, he and I met on the professional modeling circuit. I don't Yeah, know. I'm sure your paths crossed somewhere yeah. in Milan or New York or something, right? You scooped, <laughs> you, scooped a lot of, you scooped a lot of jobs from me. So we got yeah. some. Uh, you know, some you got to watch blood. Nate because, you know, he yeah. comes on really friendly and then he takes all the work, you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'll, I'll, I'll put that aside for now. I'll put that bad blood aside. But yeah, I don't, you're right. Don't forget that Calvin Klein campaign you got for me. So. <laughs> Can I say he wore the underwear better? I mean, I, I got a better man once. So. It's all about the undies. It's yeah. all about the undies. Yeah. I mean, abstock oh. in this business, abstock. So, yeah. He got me there. Right. There you go. My gosh. So, uh, as I understand, uh, Jonathan, we love our listeners to get to know our guests on a personal level. And uh, what I gather is you're a real open fella. You're, you're, you're pretty much an open book. Yes. So uh, I, I'd love to hear your story. So your story doesn't start in, in in Texas. Your story starts in rural Canada, doesn't it? Yes. I uh, I grew up on a 500-acre cattle farm um, about two and a half hours east of Toronto in Canada. Um, okay. A wonderful, a wonderful upbringing. Very, uh, I'm a child of the 80s and 90s, so very disconnected, very much you know, outside playing, you know, I yeah. was lucky. my parents didn't buy me the early consoles like the Nintendos and, and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. They just said, you know, you got 500 acres, go outside and I don't know, fall out of a tree or do something like build something, yeah. do like, and I love it. And I wouldn't have had it any other way. Um, mm. Yeah. It was uh we had purebred Charlet cattle. So we had, Oh show, yeah. Yeah. So we had show cattle. So we, I always say that wasn't, they were more like pets than they were. It wasn't like a meat processing thing. We, uh-huh. we did it for the lot, like for the shows, and we traveled the circuit and and go all over North America. And it was, yeah, it was just absolutely wonderful, wonderful way to grow up. Wow, wow, fantastic! So you grow up in the eighties and nineties, and then you just kind of cruise into adulthood with absolutely no bumps along the way. Is that how it goes? Pretty much. I mean, just the usual <laughs> adolescent stuff. I mean, you know, being yeah. 16, 17, 18, you know, those those have their own little bumps, but nothing major. You know, nothing yeah, really yeah. I can overcome, you know, puberty, yeah. acne, all that kind of fun stuff. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, nothing, uh, nothing catastrophic. No. Were, uh, were you in were you in drama in high school? I wasn't. No, I was always, always an athlete. So it was uh, I became a professional lacrosse player um, later on in life. But oh. um being from Canada, hockey is obviously a, a big passion sure. of mine. I still play on, on four different teams, four nights a week here in Texas. 
Oh wow! So that, that keeps me very busy. Um, but yeah, major athlete. Just it was. It's my passion. I've always, always been an athlete. I put that in my bio on my social media. Is I just, I just can't help it. It's just that's not something I love. I really love. Yeah, doing. yeah, yeah. Well, did and, you? Oh, go ahead, David. Well, I was just going to say, and then that um, explains you getting into personal training and things like that as well. So you very much. definitely parlayed that into part of your um, part of your livelihood now. So. It did yeah. for sure. It came a little bit later, um, but I had a real passion after, uh, and we'll get to that as uh, chronologically, but after a, a health scare, I really gained a better appreciation for our bodies and uh, mm -hmm. the passion to uh, teach others about our bodies and, and to share that and to help everybody be their, their best version of themselves. And, and that looks like a lot of different things for a lot of people. And yeah, mm -hmm. it's, it's very much a, a passion of mine and, and something that I truly enjoy and, and continue to love and practice and and uh learn about and yeah it's just it's fascinating yeah. how our bodies yeah. work that that you have kind of a multi-chapter addiction and recovery story yes um <clears throat> where where did it as you look back on it now benefit hindsight and and <coughs> maturity where did the addiction story start so um it really all started my story really starts the day before my 21st birthday and I was, like you said, just kind of cruising along, got my first first big boy job out of college. I moved out of, the, like, I'd come home for a year after college and moved out um, 11 days after I'd moved out. I got a call and my mom had died. And oh. it was extremely sudden. It, she wasn't sick. She wasn't, it was very, very sudden, very traumatic. She was very much my biggest supporter, my best friend, um, mm -hmm. just my rock, my you know, my biggest uh, cheerleader, everything, you know, everything you can imagine. So my life as I knew it was just, it, well, at the time, it was, it, it, I thought it was over. I mean, I might as well have just, you know, yeah. gone with her. But it was forever reshaped, without a doubt. I mean, it, it, it took many different paths from there. And um, the first thing that I noticed, and this is something that it was a good life lesson, is the day that my mom passed away, I remember I, we had to go back, you know, do things that you have to do when somebody passes away, you know, go see the body, all that kind of stuff. Uh -huh. And I'm, I'm sitting there having just, you know, experienced this major trauma. And like I said, I don't know my life's done as I know it. And people are still driving on the highway and they're still going mm -hmm. to work and they're still, yeah. McDonald's is still open. And I'm like, yeah. why are people doing this? You know, like yeah. stop, stop everything. Don't you realize what just happened? And, but that really taught me that, we don't know what people are going through and that, you know, everybody, you just, you don't know. And it's, it's really important to lead with grace because you never know who's had, who's having that day or who's been through yeah. whatever. And, mm -hmm. you know, that's just what life looks like. So that was a, a very early uh, lesson for me in that. But after that, I started to experience uh, mental health issues and mm -hmm. this is 20 years ago and mental health wasn't talked about as much. I was yeah. fortunate in my upbringing and also with the times too, it wasn't talked about, but I was fortunate about bringing that I never experienced anxiety or whatever, nothing, nothing to a degree that I was diagnosed or even knew those words really. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. If I did, they were a punchline on a sitcom, you know, I just, yeah, right, it, yeah. it didn't really mean much to me. Um, then I started to experience very severe anxiety, panic disorder, um, clinical depression, self-harm. And, and I just thought, okay, I'm losing it. You know, uh -huh. nobody's yeah. ever felt this before. Um, right. I'm, I, you know, I'm going crazy. 
So I've, I went to a doc, my doctor and he explained what I was going through. And I stopped, that started, you know, up, up till now, my, my struggles with and my, my life with, I'm a much better place with managing and learning the tools to navigate life with, you know, having those mental health, uh, mental health diagnoses or, or uh, issues, whatever you want to call them. But um, I found that a great self-medicator is my <laughs> old friend from college, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Al- alcohol or uh-huh. Mr. Yeah. Mrs. I don't know if it's gender flu. I don't know, but, but alcohol. <laughs> alcohol was was there for me, and yeah. it made everything kind of go away for you know thirty to twenty to thirty beers at a time, and I, uh-huh. it mm-hmm. it just put me in that comfortably numb state where. I, you know, I didn't, I didn't get the highs. I didn't get the lows. I just, you know, I could kind of cruise along, but with that came all the negatives, but I wasn't, you know, it, with, with the self-medicating, I wasn't able to let go of that and to face those things. But every time I'd come out of a binge or, you know, whatever it was, I'd have to repair the damage that I'd done with friends or uh, with yeah. family or to my body physically health, health wise. Right. I, was gaining, I was gaining weight. You know, I could just see things changing. But again, I wasn't, I knew it was. I was, I was, but I was, I was very delusional in that. And I find um, as addicts, you know, a lot of time, most of us are very delusional. Mm-hmm. You know, we, mm-hmm. we think it's everything else in our life. Like, oh, why me? Why all these things? Except for the, you know, the beer or the liquor or whatever it is that's sitting in front of you. That is the obvious reason mm-hmm. as to why these things are happening. But yeah, oh, it's yeah. Got to be that. It's got to be this. Got to be that. You don't want to admit. And then I, I finally got to a point. I remember it was, uh, it was eight o'clock on a weekday, and I was called in sick from work. I had the shakes because I was going through alcohol withdrawal, and I was opening my first beer of the day at eight o'clock, and just by myself, obviously. And I just sat there and I, I said, I, that's it. I'm an alcoholic. You know, it's, it's got me. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to beat this, but it's got me. And it was one of the hardest things that I had to realize um, in my life was that and I give all the power and and all the respect to people who go through recovery and rehab and and can you know they can address that and then take a a conscious step and and shut it off because I couldn't I couldn't do that and Mm -hmm. what finally got me to stop was I got very lucky and I got a very very um, severe case of acute pancreatitis and that put me in the hospital. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I remember it was the day before Canadian Thanksgiving, and I started to feel a little bit of a pain, and that pain grew very quickly. And I went to the hospital, and of course, I was diagnosed with acute pancreatitis. I was 25 years old at the time, and it, I was in the hospital for just under a month. I lost 40 wow. pounds. Yeah, 40 pounds in the first two weeks, 60 pounds in total. I'd have wow. five transfusions. Uh, yeah, five blood transfusions, and I was told that I almost died twice. And I've got you know tubes in my nose, I've got catheters, I've got everything you can imagine. I've got a pick line in my arm because yeah. they just you know and everything. Yeah. And you're 25 years old, you think you're you think you're invincible. You know you think yeah. yeah. You know even though I see my body falling apart, I'm I'm gaining weight, all that kind of stuff. I, I still you know you think you're invincible and laying there in the dark ward at nights at night with the you know just the the equipment beeping that's keeping you alive it really is a it's, it's a wake-up call it is absolutely mm-hmm. a wake-up call. and uh, I, uh, I i 
I remember right before I checked out, I was working with a pancreas specialist. He was overseeing my case and he was a younger guy too. And he said, look, man, like the severity of pancreatitis that you had, we don't, that's what we see in like somebody who's 70, who's been drinking for 65 years. Right. Like, we don't know why it got that bad. We don't know. But he's like, look, man, you, 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 you're done with alcohol. You can't, your body can't handle it. Like, we don't know if you can have a sip or whatever. And I said, look, man, like, I don't know you that well, but I promise you, I am done with alcohol. I never want to go through this again. This is the worst experience of my life. So from that moment on, I, I was done with alcohol. Um, it had to get that severe for me. Like I said, I, I, I needed it to be, because I'd, I'd had, like I said, all of these indicators and all these rock bottoms along the way, uh-huh. but I had to get that severe for me. And that's a very, very constant theme in my life where things have to get that severe. I've, I've definitely got an addictive personality. If I, if I want to play lacrosse, I want to go until I'm a professional lacrosse player. If I'm going to uh-huh. drink, I'm going to drink until I'm in the hospital. Like uh-huh. it's very yeah. all or nothing. It's one of my best assets and one of my, <laughs> my worst yeah. assets. Yeah, yeah. We have to, have to really watch, but yeah, that was 16 years ago. Um, haven't touched alcohol since. Will never touch alcohol. Um, I'm not a preaching on drinker though. I think everybody should do as they please. You know, mm-hmm. if, yeah. if the people can have a drink and, you know, just be good with that, then hey, more power to you. Yeah. I well, Jonathan, who walked with you through that process? I mean, it's it's unusual. I would say. Um, I mean, not. Of course, I, I mean, I guess when you end up in the hospital with a, you know, a tube in every opening of your body that it, you know, changes things a little bit. But um, it's unusual that people just make that um, that commitment and it and it stick that that significantly that first time like that. I mean, you may have tried to quit, um, you know, 78 times before that. I don't know, uh, like the rest of us. But um I don't know. Was there was there someone in your life or a group of people in your life that were walking with you from that point on to help you navigate what life without anesthesia was going to feel like? You know what? I, I had great people surrounding me, my father being one of them, mm-hmm. um, you know, friends and stuff like that. But I've always been very insular with mm-hmm. even when I was drinking, most of my drinking was by myself. Mm-hmm. Most of my drug use was by myself. I, I'm very, I'm very much that kind of a person. And you know, I had the, the mentality then that I'm not going to go to therapy because why would I go pay somebody to judge me or, you know, therapies mm-hmm. for women or, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm better than the, like, I'm better than that, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. So to be honest, I really, I made that decision for myself. I had that support system and those people that were seeing the changes that I was making, but I really took it upon myself to, to do that. And I didn't do the recovery, uh, the AA route. Um, mm-hmm. I, it wasn't until I was probably 11 years sober that I, eh, maybe eight years, I don't know, something like that, that I finally went to a meeting with a friend of mine. She just was like, hey, why don't you come check this out? And it was a, it was a very powerful experience to see all these people who are there to support one another only because we are all afflicted with the same disease or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it. It's, it doesn't pick by race, gender, tax bracket, job title, mm-hmm. you, you name it. It just, it, it's, yeah. everyody gets it. Or anybody, equal, anybody. Yeah. Equal opportunity destroyer, basically. Very, very much. Yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah. So to answer your question, I really, uh, and I'm not trying to be a hero here or anything, but I did, I did a lot of it on my own. I shifted my focus to, okay, now I need to, I've seen how my body works when I throw poison 
you know, alcohol and okay. garbage being fast food and whatever else at it. And now I want to see how it works when I take better care of it. Maybe, you know, this time when I go to Subway, I'm not going to get a meatball with triple cheese on whole <laughs> white bread. Maybe I'll get a turkey. And, and I started to really learn and teach myself. And, and it just got very fascinated about, I always say that I put my drinking energy into learning about the body and fitness. And mm-hmm. yeah. this is before like the early YouTube wasn't really a thing. So it was reading, you know, fitness and bodybuilding magazines, talking to people, making mistakes, learning. And I put, I channeled a lot of my, my focus into that. But um, as we'll get to a little bit later, it, it kind of got a little excessive, um, the working out. And, you know, as we do, we replace one addiction with the other. And uh-huh. but, but this was a quote unquote, a healthy thing. Like you can't do mm-hmm. too much of that. Right? Like, yeah, it's healthy. I'm working out. I'm going to the gym three times a day, but it's, it's good for me. Quote, uh-huh. but you know, that's, that's, that's that balance. And that's that, you know, my, my mindset. So yeah, yeah that was, that was really the, the next the next step for me was learning about that. Then I went back to playing professional lacrosse. I was having the, you know, the season of my life. I mean, I was now healthy. I was sober. Uh-huh. I was getting ready to go back to the, uh, on the next level pros. And then I had a career ending knee injury and I thought, okay, you know what? It's I'm 26 now, you know, going to work. It's not a full-time job. Um, going to work with stitches and a black eye is kind of, you know, kind of getting old. Um, mm-hmm. It's time to hang up the stick. And that's when I looked into doing some modeling because my mom was actually a model in the late seventies and early eighties. So I, yeah, so I, I had that connection and I, you know, she had talked a lot about the modeling industry and stuff and it always kind of interested me, like her, her experiences with it. I never had an opportunity, you know, especially because I was drinking and stuff, Mm -hmm. but then I, I thought, you know, what, you know, what the heck, why not give it a try and went and saw some agencies and got my, first contract with the same, my mother agency who I'm still with today. And uh, yeah, really started my, my 15 year journey up until now as an international model. Wow. That's, <laughs> uh, well, so, so you, you were aware that that, that that might be an option for you and that you might, um, you know, be able to make that a living, but that industry, from what I understand, and unlike you and Nate, I have not been in the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I could tell some stories. Let me talk for a bit, Nate, you can do it next. Let me, let me have, let me have a little bit. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, that's an industry where, uh, excess to say the least seems to me, um, you know, to flourish. So how do you, um, how do you navigate that? How do you live a balanced life? Yeah. Yeah. It was tough. And I, I'm lucky because I started, I started later on. I started when I was 26. I mean, people start when they're 16, 18. And I can't imagine Um, Mm -hmm. when you go to a casting and you don't get the job, you think what is wrong with me? Because, Mm -hmm. you know, you're, you're, you're not booking that job and there must be something wrong with me. Uh-huh. And, you know, it starts to plant a lot of seeds and stuff. And then you start comparing yourselves, yourself to other people and, you know, okay, that person booked this, this, and this job. And I got this, this, and this job. But why didn't I get those as well? Uh-huh. Maybe I need to shift and, and, you know, that's where my, my struggle with body dysmorphia started. And, you know, my, like I said, it's just, it's that comparison of, uh-huh of doing well and, and working. But I noticed my first overseas trip was to South Africa. It was 
absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. People were wonderful, but I'd seen all these guys in these magazines and now I'm competing against them and with them. Mm-hmm. And I'm still working out like a professional athlete. I, you know, just my genetics, I, I, I build muscle easily. And I realized like, I'm, I'm twice the size of these guys. Like they're, they're ripped and they're lean, but I'm, you know, I'm massive. Like, but I was still mm-hmm. working, but I was thinking again, that seed of doubt and that, that body dysmorphia started where it was like, Oh, maybe I need to change into more like what these guys are doing. Like maybe I'll get mm-hmm. more work. And uh-huh. it, it comes with that. Uh, what's wrong with me? Why didn't I, you know, that kind of mentality. So my next stop was Miami. And I remember I, I had gone full. I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to drop this muscle. I'm going to just focus on being, you know, lean and, and doing all that kind of stuff. I put down the weights, started running, doing cardio and abs only, cardio and abs. But, <clears throat> excuse me, two days after I got to New York, or got to Miami, I had a casting and my agency called me and said, hey, you know, like, welcome to Miami. We've got, a, we've got a casting for you. I'm like, great, this is awesome. You know, new to my first big U.S. market, major U.S. market. I'm like, this is awesome. So he told me that this casting was with a designer. So it was called what's called a go see. And a go see is, I mean, they could tell you, but let me just, let me just. I mean, yeah, I mean, you go ahead, yeah, Jonathan. Okay. <laughs> I mean, thanks, buddy. Nate's like holding his tongue right now. He just wants to go. Yeah. Um, a go see is when you have some new pictures or you're new to an industry, new to a, a market, and a specific designer or photographer wants to see you for themselves in person because, mm-hmm. you know, your pictures are whatever. Um, but they want to see. So I'm like, okay, cool. He said that the cast, the go see was at night. It was at 8.30. I'm like, okay. Um, it was for a swimwear underwear designer. And I'm like, okay, I, I shoot a lot of body stuff. And okay, that's not weird. It's at his house, which that was kind of weird, but okay. And the last thing he said was, just be careful. This guy's a bit of a creep. Mm. So, okay, but... You know, I just got to this major market. I've got to make it work. I got, I need to make money and whatever. So I go to the casting and I'm there and it's not odd for me to go into a, a casting and to, you know, put on a pair of Speedo or, or briefs and then just come out. Like that's uh-huh. you know, it's part mm-hmm. of the job. So that's what I was doing. I was going into his restroom and then coming out and trying on different things. And he started to make some, some odd comments and started getting very close to my, you know, my lower area, just really close to, mm-hmm. uh-huh. and he's inspecting this fabric and he's like, and I'm like, dude, there's, there's hardly any fabric. What are you inspecting? Like, uh-huh. what, what, like move on. Like what, what's going on here? So probably like four or five changes into it. You know, he's now sitting on a stool at like my crotch level and uh-huh. you know, he's like inspecting and I'm like, okay, like whatever. So I come out and do the next one. And then just out of nowhere, he pulls my pants down and he starts to sexually assault me, starts to, to fall yeah. on me. And uh-huh. I was, I was shocked. You know, I was absolutely shocked. And for those who know me, like I've been in a lot of physical altercations in my life. Um, you know, when I was young, just, you know, being young in college, you know, getting in stupid fights, uh-huh. bar fights. Um, after my mom died, I, I had a lot of misplaced anger. So I was, you know, I was looking for fights. Sure. Lacrosse mm-hmm. is a very physical sport. I had never had a problem sticking up for myself or teammates. So, so my first thought was, okay, I'm going to kill this person. I'm going to beat mm-hmm. them within an inch of their life. Mm-hmm. And then I thought to myself, like, okay, I'm, I'm going to get 
arrested for attempted murder or murder, whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. So I figured, okay, I just need to get out of the situation. Pushed him back, said, you know, you know, you do not touch me. You know, went in there through. I just said, I'm out of this. I don't want to work with you. I don't want anything to do with you. Stormed out. And I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my agency. This is before the Me Too movement. And uh-huh. yeah, in the industry, if if you, I'd heard of it happening before. And if you were to have said something, you could be labeled a troublemaker. Uh-huh. And yeah. one designer would talk to the next photographer and the photographer would talk to his friend and it would kind of spiral. And then uh-huh. you'd be kind of blacklisted, not kind of, you'd be blacklisted in the, in that market. Uh-huh. Yeah. Plus I was ashamed. I was confused. Sure. I was mad. Yeah. I was, I mean, you name it. I was every emotion. Uh-huh. So with the body dysmorphia, with that experience that I had with him, two weeks after that, I started an eight-year battle with the eating disorder. Mm. Where mm-hmm. it was, I always say I was I was a functioning bulimic, and the way that I would explain would explain that is I I'd, I'd get up and I eat my healthy breakfast, lunch, and dinner, everything, keep that down. But it wasn't until I got back to the my house or whatever, and I was in those four walls, mm-hmm. and I had mm-hmm. to be alone with my feelings. Yeah, and I needed an escape, you know, mm-hmm. and I needed something. So I'd get like a hundred dollars worth of junk food and just sit there and pig out, whatever, obviously regret it, purge it up. And that was a constant cycle of, you know, doing that for about eight years. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it, it, I don't know. It it really gave me a sense of, you know, that it hit that addiction Uh switch, that, that little, you know, that little, yeah, yeah, the control, the, Ooh, this feels good at the moment, kind of thing, and then mm-hmm. the, the regret. I mean, it's it's very similar. Yeah, to, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So same similar. same cycle, right? You know, same cycle, same yeah. cycle. So, I was dealing with that, and then I, after about three years of uh, traveling consistently for modeling, I was, you know, I did New York, I did uh, L.A. Or sorry, not L.A. I, I was representing L.A. I did London, England, um, back to New York a couple times. I kind of got a little burned out with the the travel thing, you know, living out of a suitcase. Um, I wanted to put back, put roots down. Now I was very passionate about fitness. You know, uh-huh. so I was very passionate about fitness. So I wanted to move back and, and I wanted to start a fitness business. I want to get a dog, my little sleepy little dog over there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I moved back to Toronto. I put down roots and I found that I had lost, now I'd lost another distraction, which was travel, you know, mm-hmm. the constant travel and the constant, you know, getting into another, city and, and making, you know, where's my local gym? Where's my local convenience store? Who are my mm-hmm. new friends? That kind of stuff. All that new stuff, the sense of adventure and stuff like that. It was very, a very good distraction. And mm-hmm. I lost that. Now I was coming home to the same four walls every day and yeah. indefinitely. And then I was like, okay, well, you know, this, this food thing isn't enough. I need to pick up something else. And then another old friend from college, marijuana came knocking at the door and mm-hmm. I thought, I mean, okay. I mean, I, I you know, it pairs, just, pairs nicely with junk food. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it exactly. Yeah. It exasperated. Yeah. It definitely, definitely uh, did not help that. But again, with my addictive personality, if I was going to smoke, I was going to smoke a ton, but uh-huh. I was, yeah. again, I was, I'd wake up. I wouldn't, I wouldn't smoke. I would go, train my clients in the morning. I'd go to a shoot. I would go to the gym. I would you know, do whatever I had to do. And then it was those four walls and dri- driving home. I could feel the anxiety building. Mm-hmm. I could feel it yeah. building. And as soon as I stepped in the door, it was just smoke all night until I pass out. And again, I, when I do something, I do it 
a lot. So I was smoking ounces of marijuana a week. Yeah. Just, you know, trying to numb myself. I also got back into uh, nitrous oxide, which is like whip it, an inhalant. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. You know, it just, it's a like very huffing or. Yeah. Similar to it's, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's the gas that comes out of a whipped cream before it's, right. it's, it's technically made for, it's used for making whipped cream, but if you inhale it, it, you know, cuts off the circulation and makes all kinds of things. And uh-huh. It only lasts for 30 seconds, so you do like over and over and over. Uh-huh. And then I found Adderall, and I heard about I'd heard about Adderall and you know how productive you can be. And oh yeah, how you can stay lean and it it curbs your appetite and you can get stuff done. And I was like, well, that just sounds like a dream come true. So I found that, and with all these things going on at the same time, you know, I was doing three, four day, like I was awake for three or four days on these binges. Uh-huh. If I didn't oh, yeah. have I didn't have a shoot. I didn't have clients, whatever. If I had a chance, I would literally not sleep and a wink. I'd be awake for three or four days, smoking, doing nitrous, Adderall, just locked up in my apartment. Mm-hmm. I mean, this little dog here saved my life because, you know, the, the loneliness and all that kind of stuff, the mental health side of it, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. So I, uh, I had turning points with each of those substances where, you know, uh, like we talked about before, we you know, I've, I've hit so many rock bottoms and I mean, I can't count the number of times that I dumped out all that, my Adderall and weed and said, this is the mm-hmm. last time. Sure. Yeah. And then a, a couple of days later, it's like, oh man, here come my feelings. You Maybe know? I yeah. overreacted, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Well, if I just get a little bit, then, you know, I'll just, just a little bit and then I'll be, well, yeah. as we know as, as addicts, a little uh-huh. bit's never enough. And all of it in the world is never enough. I mean, a little, yeah. it just, it, there's no middle ground. But I came to, I had instances similar to pancreatitis with each of these things where I kind of like a very definitive moment where I said, okay, enough is enough. And marijuana really started to take a turn on me. And it started to put me in a very, uh, a very paranoid place. Whereas Mm -hmm. before I could just zone out, put on some cartoons, whatever, just, you know, enjoy the high. Now it was a dark place. And I was thinking about all the things that I should be doing for work. And I wasn't mo- motivated or you know focused enough to actually do. So mm-hmm. I was like, this isn't fun. So I, I stopped that. Same thing with the nitrous. I, I came home one day and you know the addict's mindset. So as soon as I'd finished being productive and doing what I needed to do, and even before that too, because you know throughout the day I'm thinking, okay, I've got to do this, 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 and this. At what point am I going to make the stop or go to where I need to go to get my drug? Me, you know meet that guy in the parking lot and pick up some weed or, mm-hmm. you know, go and get those. So I came home with 300 cartridges of nitrous oxide and I'm sitting there and I'm like, this is a party, man, by myself. I've got 300 of these things and there's 10 per box, you know, one cartridge is used to make a whole canister of, of whipped cream. Like at Starbucks, you see those canisters? Oh yeah. They use one of those little cartridges and I'm huffing hundreds at a time. Uh-huh. And I sat there and I got, you know, two quarters or three quarters, no, two thirds of the way through. And I broke down and I looked at myself. I looked at the empty pile on the right of me and the fresh pile on the left of me. Cause I would just dump them out and I'd go one to the next one to the next. And I was like, I can't do this, man. I can't, I don't, I shouldn't be doing this. I broke down. I was crying. I was like, I have to stop this. So I, I got the, I, I summoned the power of just whatever strength I had. I took everything I had, all my, 
all my uh, paraphernalia for that. I walked over my garbage, garbage disposal. I threw out all the new ones, the old ones, my canister, everything. I just threw it out. Mm. And I said, okay, that's enough of that. The Adderall kind of stuck around for a little bit because, you know, that was a, you know, a productive drug. Mm-hmm. But the next thing I had, because again, I hadn't addressed these feelings or these traumas that I had, you know, just kind of neatly packed away in little, you know, nice little compartmentalized boxes, you know, mm-hmm. and they were stacking up and kind of falling in on me and I'd, you know, get my, my fix and push them away. So I went to uh, an over-the-counter back pill and a back muscle relaxing back pill because mm-hmm. I had aches and pains from, you know, excessive working out or from lacrosse, you know, those kinds of things. And I'm never, I, I remember they had, each pill had 500 milligrams of methocarbamol, which is the active muscle releaser or muscle relaxer and 200 milligrams of ibuprofen, the pain reliever. And I would take some when I was smoking weed and I'd be like, oh, this, you know, I feel a little extra loose. Like, oh, it's kind of nice. So now this was the last thing I had to lean on. So I went in the span of a few weeks, I went from taking, you know, it says don't, don't exceed eight per day. I went from taking, you know, 10, 15 per day. I was taking 100 pills every single day. Wow. 50,000 milligrams without, without fail. I would go in the, I'd get the generic version. I was having 50,000 milligrams of methocarbamol and 20,000 milligrams of ibuprofen every single day. I would oh, just wow. dump handfuls of 35, 40. I wouldn't count them. I would just put them in, swallow them, wake up, or, you know, sometimes I get high, sometimes I get to sleep, I, but wake up, same thing. I do that for months and months and months. And again, I'm seeing these, I, I'm seeing my body kind of, you know, waste away. I'm, I'm, I don't have any energy. I'm having fainting spells in my apartment. I'm starting my anxieties through the roof because I'm thinking, you know, what happens if I'm in public or driving and I have a fainting spell? Mm. So I realize again, it's what's in front of you. You know, I, I was making all the excuses. It's this thing in front of you. And one morning I was getting ready to go to a shoot and I was brushing my teeth and I couldn't, I couldn't hold my own, my own weight. I bought, my knees were buckling and I, I uh. physically couldn't hold my own weight. So I messaged my agency. I'm like, I, I'm not going to the shoot. I'm going to the emergency room. And I had major internal bleeding from an intestinal ulcer. And it was because, I mean, that much ibuprofen and yeah. carb. I mean, it was just eating away and it was just my blood, my blood levels were compl- extremely low. I was uh. anemic. I was all these things. So that's when I finally said, okay, enough is enough. Okay. Like either I graduate to the next level of drugs and I take a hydro, whatever, or cocaine or whatever, or I do something about this and I need to do something drastic. I need to do something that I hadn't done before. And that thing for me was therapy and Uh it was going to talk to somebody and, Uh you know, it scared the heck out of me because here I am, I'm going to go sit down and I've got to talk about all this stuff that for 15 years now, you know, I was 35 at the time I haven't wanted to talk about and I've been running away from. And it was, it was the best thing, but it was the hardest thing Uh because you know, talking about all these things that I've been not talking about for 15 years and now talking about them, but not having, not having a substance or a, you know, distraction to help. I mean, I just, holy moly, man. But with that same, I would say with that same farm boy mentality, whereas, you know, you wake up in a summer break and, you know, your friends are going to the cottage, but we've got to do, you know, 13 hours of hay today because it needs to be done. 
those animals yeah. those animals rely upon us uh-huh. so that's what we do we would just go out in the morning we put our heads down and we would just go until the job was done the same with athletics you know if i you know getting ready for a game whatever it was you just put your head down and get in game mode you go out there and i i tried to channel that same energy and put it towards it and fight through my demons and uh-huh. man oh man when i say it got dark i mean i i just thought i could never get through this i'm never going to be normal I, you know, I should just take the easy way out, you know, which we all know that what that is. But, you know, I just, I, I always tried to focus on a little bit of positivity, you know, uh, for that day, even though uh-huh. days seemed bleak, they ran together. And again, my dog, she's wonderful. She does, she saved my life more times than she knows because uh-huh. I made a promise to her when I got her that I would take care of her and do the best I could for her. And just getting out of the apartment and going for a walk, uh-huh. you know, getting out of my head talking to, you know, the maintenance guy in my apartment who I was good friends with, you know, those little things helped Mm -hmm. me immensely just to help keep me out of that. And over time, I I started to learn the tools from my therapist. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to learn the tools so I could take control. I didn't want to have to constantly rely on somebody, but it was that. It was learning those tools that that really helped. Well, Jonathan, what do you think, looking back into that space, that you realized you were determined not to feel when you were doing all the substances and all the behaviors, you were obviously, you know, keeping certain feelings at bay. And I can imagine everything from unresolved grief to shame to, you know, whatever it was, but what, what kind of was, was there an aha moment in therapy or maybe a series of little aha moments, but was there something that really came to the surface that you determined that you realized you were so determined not to feel or experience that you wouldn't allow yourself to, to go there uh, that came into focus for you through that process? That's a great question. And there definitely were. There were, there were a number of things, you know, because, I mean, I've been doing it for 15 years. Mm-hmm. But even, you know, the, the guilt of the fact that I had moved out of the – I moved away from the farm mm-hmm. 11 days earlier – before my mom died, I thought, okay, if if I was there, I I, I should have been there. Or maybe uh-huh. I could have done something. So I carried that guilt with me for a long uh-huh. time. Uh-huh. Um, and then obviously the sexual assault and, and all, all that kind of stuff. Like, oh, like I said, I was very good at car- I thought I was very good at compartmentalizing, you know, and, yeah. and putting all these mm-hmm. things. And there were just so many things. And and a big one for me was also the feeling of being a fraud, whereas everything on the outside looked like, uh-huh. like it was great. Now I walk in the gym and it's like, man, there's Jonathan, the international model, man, he's one of the best shaped guys in the gym. Look at the stuff he can do. And, oh man, and people are saying this stuff about me and saying this stuff to me inside. I felt hollow, empty, uh-huh. broken. You know, I felt mm-hmm. like an absolute fraud. I, 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 I use the analogy of my Jeep because I have a Jeep. I love it. It's great. Um, at the time, Everything on the outside, I always kept it, you know, clean, shiny, everything. Uh It needed a new head gasket. But I was too focused on drugs and alcohol, and not not alcohol, but at the time, drugs, to find the time and the money to do the head gasket. Uh So on the inside, it was falling apart and ended up blowing the engine. But on the outside, it was shined up and perfect. Everything looked, you know, tire shine, everything. So I was the same way. And it was that, that that was a really big one for me is Uh to, and I would tell myself like, I need, I would, I would write it down and I would like, just tell myself, I'd look in the mirror and be like, I need to be the person that people think I am and not for them, but for myself. 
So I can look in the mirror and I can say that I'm, I'm comfortable with the person and I'm happy with the person I am on the inside and the outside matters a lot less, but I'm happy with the person I am on the inside. Uh-huh. And that reflects more of what I'm putting on. Cause like a lot of I know, addicts, I was great at putting on the mask, you know, yeah. that mask, I, you know, you needed a, a lie. I had it, you know, why didn't you answer the phone for four days? Oh, I dropped my phone in the bathtub. Uh-huh. Or why didn't you know? I mean, I, I mean, I was just like you know, on the, off the top of my head, sure. putting on that mask, and I always had a way. And a lot of people who knew me back then, once I started talking about this stuff publicly, were like, "Man, we had no idea. Like uh-huh. you, like we knew you during that time. We'd see you at the gym every day, or what? We had no idea. Like you just were so good at like hiding it and not showing it. And so that was a big one. That was a big one too. And. Of course, you know, the, the still the feelings of the sexual assault and, and, you know, the shame that went along with that and the eating disorder for, for years until about probably about a calendar year ago, I never thought I would tell, I didn't even tell my therapist when I was 35 about the eating disorder and sexual assault mm-hmm. because I was embarrassed. You know, I'm a manly guy, whatever, whatever that means, quote unquote, mm-hmm. but you know, having been touched by another guy, that's not manly. That's embarrassing. You know, having a, having dealt with an eating disorder, that's, that's embarrassing, but I've, I very much have embraced the, like the moniker that vulnerability is power. And now that I've, I've begun to, I've forgiven myself for a lot of things Uh and the things that I've done and the choices I've made, like choosing alcohol and choosing drugs to numb myself. You know what? I forgive myself. I was trying to do the best I could at the time. Was it the yeah. right thing to do? No, but I was young. I was, tr- I was trying. I was, you know what? I was trying. Well, you were and managing pain, a great deal yeah, of pain. Yeah. Exactly. So I've, I'm like, you know what? All that time, the hundreds of thousands of dollars, I wish I had my bank account. Yeah. No, it's, <laughs> it's gone. It's never coming back. Okay. I can live with that. Fine. Uh-huh. The things that have happened to me that I didn't, you know, I didn't ask for my mom passing away, the sexual assault, those are okay too, because they're facts of life and things that mm-hmm. I didn't bring upon myself, but they happened. And they are things that I can forgive myself for because like I said, I, they were out of my control and mm-hmm. without those things, both, both sides of the, of the coin, I wouldn't be the person I am today. And mm-hmm. I truly feel that I needed to go through those things to become the person I am today. And I'm, I'm very proud of that. And you know, the first time I talked about the sexual assault or the eating disorder and stuff like that, it was, oh my gosh, you know, I walked mm-hmm. in the hockey locker room the next day and I was like, they know they're going to look at me differently. Mm-hmm. And nobody did. Nobody mm-hmm. did. Yeah. I was the same guy who walked in the day before I walked in the gym, same thing. I'm like, everybody's looking at me because I put, you know, cause I pressed that post button on Instagram and Facebook, you know, they, mm-hmm. they know some of my secrets, but nobody did. People yeah. came up and it was the opposite. They were like, man, wow. Good for you. Like that's, that's really, really a powerful thing to do. So what would you say to somebody that's listening that uh, is where you uh, were with, um, you know, the uh, the world can't handle my truth, so to speak. So I'm just going to keep it all to myself. What would you say to somebody who's who would love to tell more than anything, some someone who would listen, but they just believe that the ground will open them up and swallow them if they speak their truth into the reality of the air? Yeah, I would say probably the same thing that the three of us have in common is that there are a lot of people who have the same things in common and you'll find whereas, whereas you feel like it's just me. I'm a loser. 
I let this stuff get the better of me. You know, I, you know, I should be better than that. You know, I, it's embarrassing, all that kind of stuff. You'd be very surprised how many people out there have either dealt with the same thing or, you know, will support you and sympathize and maybe they haven't dealt with it, but they will, you know, they'll, they'll maybe know somebody else who has, but like, it's like, like I said, vulnerability is power. And as okay. much as, you know, like I guess I said before, I, I never thought that I was going to be normal. I never thought that I, I had resigned myself to, this is my life. I'm going to go from substance to substance. I'm never going to advance in my life. I'm just going to keep, barely keep my head above water, underwater sometimes. I would say that, you know, embrace it and really like, you know, maybe don't come on a podcast. It's not for everybody. And I'm, it's, but I would say talk to people or talk about it. And I would first stop, I would be go to a mental health professional, you know, yeah. talk to them, talk to somebody who's educated, non-biased third party who can actually sit down with you and help you see things from a different perspective. And that was a big thing for me is looking at things from a different perspective yeah. and saying that, you know, I was only 21 at the time. I mean, uh, you know, the fact that I chose to to drink and do those things, I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't, if I could go back and talk to my 21-year-old self, I would just say, look, man, it's going to be hard. It's going to be very hard and it's going to be bleak and it's going to be a long time. But just know that if you keep fighting and you're going to, it's going to get better and you will get through this. That's, I wouldn't say don't drink. I wouldn't say don't do this. I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say any of that. I wouldn't say, I would just say you will get through this and it will get better because I mean, I spent 15 years of it's never going to get better and slowly progressively. And, you know, we have the ups and downs of daily life and stuff like that, but it has gotten better and yeah, I wouldn't change it. I would, I wouldn't change those things, but I would say for sure to reach out and to take that first step. I mean, I think admitting is the first step to growth and growing it's it really is and to finding communities and leaning on and you know like yourselves you know these these wonderful outlets and these wonderful things that you guys are doing that bringing stories forward that are showing that you know people people go through this stuff so that's what that's definitely the first thing i would say well it sounds to me jonathan that you have learned the lesson that david and i have learned the way to keep this freedom is to give it away Yes. really a life of service we find purpose we turn uh, our experience into uh purposeful activity for the benefit of others um yes. so for those of our listeners who would like uh you're gonna you have a podcast in the works i do for those yeah. who would like to to reach you what's the best way for them to reach jonathan nizel um, so I'm on all the socials on Instagram. Um, it's Jonathan Nizel, TikTok, Jonathan Nizel, um, YouTube, Jonathan Nizel on Facebook and my website are Jonathan Nizel official. And that's the best way to reach me. I love to hear from people. I love to hear from people in this community um, to help each other learn and grow. You know, I, I love hearing from people and learning from people. And I don't by any means think I have it all figured out. I'm just some regular dude who's trying to do life, man. Like I'm just trying to, just trying to do life like everybody yeah. else is. So yeah. I love connecting with people like yourselves, anybody, but yeah, those are the best ways to, to get a hold of me. Fantastic. Well, Jonathan, thank you for taking time today to talk with us. Listeners stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment on the positive sobriety podcast.
Welcome back to the Positive Sobriety Podcast. And our guest was Jonathan Neisel. And uh, Nate, you know, one of the things he said near the end that I think is probably one of the most significant things that I would love for people to consider is that, um, you know, we all have had that space where we felt like if we said it out loud or we told someone or we shared whatever it was that that, that somehow our unique pain would not be accepted or we would be yes. judged or, you know, rejected, ridiculed, all that stuff. And um, over and over and over, we hear people like Jonathan saying, you know, the world didn't open up and swallow me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and I found freedom in, yeah. in sharing that. So, uh, yeah, I, you know, all of us in during our years of active addiction are prisoners of shame. We're hiding. Mm-hmm. That's what shame mm-hmm. does. It hides. Mm-hmm. And there's only one way out of shame, mm. and that is to let somebody else see. You have to step into the light. You've got to say it, and there has yeah. to be a witness. Yeah. There's no private way out of shame. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I'm so – I think Jonathan did a wonderful job of describing this freedom that comes as we tentatively begin you know, to face our own fear of rejection – and annihilation and mm-hmm. actually form the words and say to somebody else uh, what's actually going on. That's yeah. <laughs> And then that door starts to open. We can get yeah. out of that, that shame prison. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. Wonderful. It thing. is. It is. He was a great, great guest. I hope that uh, he's uh, able to get his uh, podcast up and going soon and all the little projects he's got associated with his story. It sounds like a powerful an encouraging opportunity for people. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I guess that does it for this week's episode. It's been great talking to you and what a nice conversation that was more, more to come listeners. So until next time, I'm Nate and I'm David and we are your pals on the positive sobriety podcast. The positive sobriety podcast is recorded at crossroads for the nations in Brentwood, Tennessee, Live producer Rex Schnelli, music by Rex Schnelli, theme music by Matt Ulrich, uh, hair and makeup by Lyle Lovett, uh, wardrobe <laughs> by Kathy Gifford. 